program was developed to fund a few months at a time you know, the company's payroll and other operating expenses. And people saw that as an opportunity to commit fraud. And people that are either you know, making false claims on an application to try to inflate the numbers of workers that they have, or they're creating fictitious entities. You're listening to Sam Azari, a white-collar defense attorney in Chicago, Illinois. Welcome to the Fraud Fighter Podcast. But what I haven't really seen too much is a forensic accountant making the effort to find a way to be helpful to the lawyer other than offering their services. Your LinkedIn profile or your website profile is kind of like what our business cards were in you know the mid-90s or early 2000s. In this episode, we discuss how fraud is committed with PPP and EIDL loans, the criteria used to calculate prison time, and how forensic accountants can market themselves as experts. He's an attorney in Chicago practicing federal and white-collar defense. He represents defendants across the country. Sam Azari, welcome to the Fraud Fighter Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's really great to be here. I appreciate it. Why did you pursue a law career? So interestingly enough, I started with my bachelor's degree in electrical and computer engineering, and I was all set to be a patent lawyer, and I thought that would be a, a good way to combine several passions into one career. I mean, number one, as a trial lawyer, you're, you know, you're really not just persuading a jury, but you're also teaching them, and I always wanted to be a teacher. And then it also kind of combined my you know, technical uh, expertise, I guess, and my passion for public speaking and being in front of an audience. So I thought being a trial lawyer would be the way to go. It was just a, a interesting way to combine a bunch of things that I like to do. And when you say trial lawyer, do you mean like just litigation in general or a particular section of law? Trying cases in general. So that's why I gravitated more towards criminal. I just knew I wanted to be not just litigating cases, but actually trying them in front of a jury. So opening statements, closing arguments, cross examinations. Uh, those are things that not a lot of litigators do, specifically only trial lawyers do those things. If you're in the electrical engineering, computer science field area, you decide to go to law school, when did it start clicking that you want to become a criminal defense lawyer? So this is where it gets, uh, people find this amusing. So when I was waiting for my bar results a little over 15 years ago, I you know, I got a job waiting tables nights and weekends and you know, just uh, keep busy until I got my bar results. So at one point I got my bar results, I passed, I got a job and I started working. Uh, but because I'd been working for several months at a restaurant, I, I kept the job uh, while I was a lawyer. And it was I wasn't doing criminal defense when I first started. So it just, but you know, being in the restaurant industry, as anyone that's worked in that industry knows, there's a lot of riffraff in there. So, you know, one by one, friends of mine just kept getting arrested, whether it was for you know, <laughs> low level, uh, yeah, DUIs, drug or gun offenses, and I just found myself doing more and more criminal work. Uh, I got a taste of it, and I really enjoyed it. So I decided I wanted to continue pursuing criminal defense 100%, and have slowly gravitated my practice towards that, and have change the the type of criminal defense that I've, I've done since then. All right. I got to ask this question. What kind of restaurant are you bussing tables or being a waiter at or whatever you're doing that somehow the clientele is getting in trouble, number one? And number two is they decide that they want to ask their server about law. Yeah, well, it, 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 was, it was actually friends that I worked with. So it was actually uh, Okay, well, that, that I understand because, you know, the restaurant businesses, you can get some riffraff in there. Yeah, I, I understand that part. Oh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> can't show up today. Uh, hey, Sam, you, you passed a bar. Can you help me out? Bail me out? Yeah, sure. Why not? Uh, exactly. Sure show up yeah, tomorrow. Just one by one. Be show up tomorrow by one. You got to do your shift. Okay. <laughs> All righty. Fair enough. In criminal defense, how long have you been a criminal defense lawyer now? Uh, about 15 years now. I've been focusing exclusively on criminal defense. Doing a white collar, what's going on in particular regarding the PPP loans? PPP loans started under a different administration. And, you know, that administration was not really too focused on prosecuting people that were, you know, committing race and white collar frauds. And so things have changed now. Not only has the administration changed, but also we're kind of getting out of this pandemic and more resources are being, you know, devoted to combating the fraud that took place over the last several years. So we, you know, we're seeing that the government is staffing more and making a more strategic approach to targeting the brazen frauds that took place throughout the last few years of the COVID-19 pandemic. So what does PPP stand for? It's a paycheck protection program, and it's basically a, a loan that's been backed by the Small Business Administration to help businesses keep uh, people employed. You know, obviously, when there were uh, companies that had to you know, essentially shut down, whether it was a restaurant or a movie theater, you know, there were a lot of people that were out of work. And in an effort to keep people employed, uh, this program was developed to fund a few months at a time, you know, the company's payroll and other operating expenses. And people saw that as an opportunity to commit fraud and take money that didn't belong to them and they were not entitled to. And a lot of other people were not able to get the money during the first round as a result of that fraud. So what fraud is occurring with these PPP loans? How's it done? Yeah, so the most common one, and those are the low-hanging fruit, is people that are either making false claims on an application to try to inflate the numbers of workers that they have, or they're creating fictitious entities to begin with that they don't even have a don't even have an operating business purely for the purpose of getting a loan and uh, they're getting a sizable amount of money. And upon someone making a complaint, whether it's some sort of a whistleblower or someone doing a random audit, it's discovered that an employee that may have filled out an application claiming they have 10 employees and, you know, X dollars in payroll actually had no employees, no payroll and little to no business expenses. And the entity was made up from whole cloth purely for the purpose of getting this loan. So that's usually the most common thing that people hear about only because it kind of makes the best story. You know, you'll, you'll hear about people that took on hundreds of thousands of dollars in PPP relief. And they went out and bought a Lamborghini and just spent the money on random assortment of luxury items that aren't business expenses. So that's that's the most common that people hear about. But there's been other frauds that have taken place. So another common one from more of an institutional standpoint is price gouging. For instance, I think there was a a company maybe just a few weeks ago in I think Brooklyn that was uh, sentenced for price gouging. I think they were charging 400% markup on KN95 masks. And so the company was charged a significant amount of money, I think a $314,000 fine for the price gouging that was taking place. So it came in varying forms. And obviously, when you commit a fraud like that, it could be uh, wire fraud, it could be, you know, there could be some tax implications, so you could get charged with tax fraud, un- unemployment insurance fraud. So it just trickled down to so many different areas of fraud, uh, because there are so many elements to it. Because it's a loan, does it have to be paid back? 
I mean, because I, I would I would assume that there's a loan out there, but but does not the government later on possibly forgive this loan, which makes it kind of lucrative? Right, exactly. And that was the opportunity that people saw. And so with the uh, the SBA loan, the PPP loan, you did not have to pay that back. I mean, you could apply for full forgiveness and people often got that. And it got to be to the point that if you got a small enough loan under a few hundred thousand dollars, all you had to do was fill out a certification that you spent the money as you were supposed to, and you didn't have to provide any supporting documentation. Now, there was another loan is the EIDL loan, uh, Economic Injury Disaster Loan. And that loan, you did have to pay back. And what I noticed was that there were people that were getting that loan to paying off other things that they weren't supposed to, like high interest credit cards and things like that, only because the interest rate was so low. So there were people that I personally knew, uh, other lawyers that would approach me and say, hey, I'm, I'm going to take out this EIDL loan. And they, they would ask me if I was doing, I said, no, I, I, I didn't want to or need to. And I said, well, well, why wouldn't you? It's basically just like a low interest loan that you could take out and you could just repay it, re- repay it back. So people were taking advantage of the fact that even if they didn't need the money and they had access to the, the PPP loan, they were still taking out these EIDL loans only because there was such low interest. It was like getting a loan that you might not have otherwise taken on. Would the government open up its coffers uh, when the pandemic started about – now, a, little, a little after March of 2020, the idle loans are just loans, but the government just, just doesn't just give you a loan just for the kicks and giggles. I mean, there had to be some type of purpose behind it. Oh, I want to start a new trucking business. I want to, I, I want to buy new equipment. I mean, was that the purpose of the idle loan or just, hey, here's a personal loan at low interest rates? It was pandemic related. So similar to the PPP loan, the, the whole purpose of it was to keep companies afloat during a time where companies were having to shut its doors. So I think the government knew the economic impact of not giving this money would have been significantly worse than, than offering these two loans. So I think it was maybe a cost benefit analysis to what would have happened had these had the money not been doled out. And I think there were several businesses that would have failed throughout the pandemic that were able to stay afloat as a result of the money that they they got. And that was the purpose of it. And when you had these people that were taking advantage of the tough times, and as a, as a result of the pandemic, the government was, and the banks and the lenders were not being too careful uh, with who they gave the money to or what amount really wasn't being questioned, particularly because the money was backed by the SBA. Right. But the problem that you ran into is, they were they were too nervous to do do their due diligence at the time because they didn't want to deny anyone the money that might have actually needed it. And as a result of that, people were able to slip through the cracks and get the money that they weren't entitled to. The fraud that I am familiar with personally was the idle loans in particular, where some guy will goes to a friend and says, I can get you a loan for $100,000, but it'll cost you $15,000 for my fee. And the guy goes, hey, sure, sure, I'll take 85000 you know, whatever, that type of thing. And then he gets the 100000 pays his friend fifteen. now he's at 85000 but it's used to purchase a car, refine, that, that type of stuff. But the application itself by the originator who thought up the scheme said it's for a new business or asset business assets when when 
the fact of the matter is the guy who actually got the money at the end of the day doesn't have a clue what was even on the application. He just paid $15,000 to get the application done, never signed it, never saw it, and all of a sudden he gets the money. And then the government starts knocking on his door going, hey, you had a, supposedly you had a trucking business. Where's it at? Well, I spent the money on paying off my girlfriend's car. Well, that's not <laughs> – you owe the money back, buddy. Or it was, oh, here's some money. Uh, it's a romance scheme where the money is flowing to the – we'll call it the victim. And the victim takes it out in cash and gives it back to supposedly his girlfriend in Thailand, sending it cash FedEx, whatever else it is. And all of a sudden, there's a loan in this, in this victim's name, you know, not even knowing it. It's kind of, it's just really weird. Um, but yeah, that's that's the the stuff that I saw. And of course, no, the f- false employees on on the payroll for the PPP stuff is is quite obvious. Right. Yeah, and I think that's one one of the things that was really unfortunate is if, you know if, if somebody wants to start their own fictitious entity and they want to just jeopardize their own name and reputation and put themselves in and give themselves the possibility of getting federally indicted, it's fine. But, you know, what you're absolutely right, that there were people taking advantage of less sophisticated individuals and opening businesses either in their name or taking advantage of the fact that they had a business open that they weren't using or or was merely a business on paper and uh, taking advantage of people that were uh, not as savvy or didn't expect somebody to do something like that. It's unfortunate. In your experience representing, let's say, defendants for these PPP or idle loans, what are the judges looking at when they consider sentencing? I mean, there's the loan itself, right? And then there's actually what the person got. Uh, and then there's – so it's what's, what the loan was requested for, maybe what the defendant got, and then what, what the dis- defendant ultimately spent. There's three, three different numbers out there. What are judges looking at in sentencing? Interestingly enough, when you're talking about the federal sentencing guidelines, the lost amount isn't just what you got. It's what you know. It's called the unintended loss or the intended loss, I should say. Let, let's just say in the in the world of PPP fraud, if you applied for a million dollar loan and you got it and you spent one hundred thousand dollars fraudulently, and then you still had the other nine hundred thousand dollars when they charged you you're still on the hook for the million dollar fraud. So you're going to get a sentence as if you blew a million dollars as opposed to blowing a hundred thousand dollars. So that's the intended loss. And so it, and it really, it's, it's kind of a fact specific inquiry. So take, for example, let's just say at the time that I fill out the application, I you know take out a million dollars and I spend the first $200,000 on business expenses. And then the other $800,000 on things that I'm not supposed to be spending my PPP loan money on. Right. Now, what's what's the judge supposed to think at that point? Because at the time that you filled out the application, more than likely you wanted to use it legitimately. I mean, the first $200,000 in expenditures were legitimate. And then suddenly you veered off course and you spent you know, the next $800,000 illegitimately. So what's going to be the fraud? Now, if... I would be able to argue that you know you should only be paying the price for the eight hundred thousand dollars because the the application was filled out honestly and legitimately, and you used the first few hundred thousand dollars the way it was intended to be used, and that only then did you veer off course. Now, in other instances, it's you know wholly fabricated. the The application itself is a complete fraud. Everything on there is completely false, and at the time that you filled out the certification, you knew it to be false, and so you're on the hook for everything. But, you know, if you take the, the, the reverse of that, 
you fill out the application, you get a million dollars, you spent $800,000 first illegitimately, then you have a change of heart and you start spending $200,000 legitimately. Then the reality is the judge is probably going to assume that at the time that you filled out the application, you intended to use a million dollars illegitimately, and they're going to give you the million dollar loss amount. There's only been I think one case in the Eighth Circuit as, as, as of two years ago when I wrote an article for Law 360 that talked about the intended loss, and it wasn't regarding a PPP loan. It was regarding another government assistance loan, and it was one of the first cases of its kind that mentioned that you can take certain factors into account in determining what the loss amount is, and that's if you could adequately determine how much of the money was spent legitimately versus illegitimately. But up until that case, and that's just Eighth Circuit law, it hasn't really you know, matriculated its way through the certain courts in, in, around the entire country. That was really the first case of its kind that opened the door to making an argument to legitimate versus uh, illegitimate uses of the money. So more than likely, other circuits right now are just looking at the application itself and how much you asked for, and that's the loss amount that you're going to be paying the price for. Interesting. I, based upon my experience, Sam, is sometimes, and I, I, I can see you reading the tea leaves, right? When, when you're sitting, when you sit at the prosecution's table for a period of time, you can see the judge mulling over the sentencing and the enhancements and that type of thing, right? And there's some wiggle room around around all that. And maybe I've been in a more conservative district, but it appears that many judges will take the lesser approach so it becomes appeal-proof almost. It's easy to appeal a million dollars when 200000 was legitimate, 800000 was not, and all of a sudden it sends for a, for a million. But it's a lot easier to sit there and say, okay, I'm going to send it to you at 800000 because it's almost appeal-proof. In other words, what's, what's the defendant going to say? I didn't spend it on that? I mean, they've already agreed that they spent the $800,000 on illegitimate stuff. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I, I understand what you're saying. And I think, yes, yeah, some jurisdictions are going to be a little bit more aggressive than others. So it really depends on where you have your case out of. And pursuant to you know the Department of Justice memos, they're supposed to charge and, and try to convict someone off the more serious case that they've been indicted under. And so ultimately, the prosecutor likely won't be agreeing to the lesser amount. It's what the amount the judge is going to give at the sentencing hearing. And that's just one of many factors. I mean, there's other things for the judge to consider. And other than, you know, obviously, there's going to be a base level offense for anything charged in federal court. Then you have, you know, the, the loss amount, that's just one characteristic. And then you can have enhancements for whether or not somebody had sophisticated means when they committed the fraud, whether there was abuse of a position of trust, and then obviously someone's criminal history is going to be a factor as well. So there's many factors. And I think the, the, the best way to make it appeal proof, if, if the judge, obviously the judges go for that because they don't like being reversed on appeal, is to sentence someone to either below or within the guidelines. Right. You know, so typically what they'll do is if, if they don't want to have an issue for appeal, the government will ask someone to sign an appeal waiver uh, if they're doing a change of plea agreement, and sometimes if there's a benefit to waiving your appeal rights, uh, defendants are often, you know, kind of coerced into to signing that, and there's there's definitely no way for an appeal. But if a judge doesn't see an appeal waiver in the plea agreement, then they want to ensure that the case isn't going to come back before another judge at that district. You know, they could just give someone a sentence that's within the guidelines or maybe even a little bit below, and there'd be really no basis to appeal at that point because you're just opening up a huge risk by sending it up to the appellate court and to get 
kicked back to the district court to get resentenced only to get a higher sentence. It's interesting. You talked about the appeal waiver. I've seen it both ways. I've seen one prosecutor doesn't do it at all. And another one, it's all he does. You want to plead guilty to this, sign this waiver. And it it holds up in court at the end of the day because, you know, you signed the appeal waiver. And that's how it is. I've seen prosecutors in the same office. One likes it, one hates it. I, I don't understand why they hate it, but they do. And so, you know, it's one of those deals where you work with one prosecutor. They, it's almost like part of the package deal, the waiver. And the other one's like, no, we don't do that stuff. It's it's interesting. Yeah, I know it is interesting. And I, I have noticed it's different to the different jurisdictions that I go to. They definitely handle it differently. And I, you know, I hate them because there's always a risk when you do that. Oh yeah, from a defense standpoint, whatever the judge says, you're eating. <laughs> right. You're bad, you're eating it. Yes. <laughs> We talked about the, the judges and the sentencing. There was something recently that's been out there are lenders, and these lenders are sending out these for a history of the PPP loans, I think the idle loans. The banks were the ones issuing the loans, knowing that the SBA was, was securing it. So are the lenders at risk at all or not? But I can foresee maybe lenders not doing their due diligence and maybe just issuing the loans. And I mean, so how does that work? Are the, are the lenders being prosecuted or at least looked at or scrutinized now versus just the, the people who receive the loans? Yeah. So in the traditional sense of the lenders, like your Chase banks and your bank of America, there hasn't been any major litigation or fraud allegations against institutions like that. And, you know, one of the things I want to emphasize is that when those institutions were given out the money, you know, they kind of erred on the side of caution and were liberally given out the money because they didn't want to deprive anyone that truly needed it by doing a, uh, a deep dive into someone's financials before they gave the money. I mean, times were tough. Everyone was struggling. So I think the, the main goal was just to get the money out. We'll worry about the fraud later type of, type of thought process. Yep. And so with the larger institutions, I haven't really seen or heard anything, but in, you know, traditionally for the last few years, the focus has been on the individuals that took out the money and spent it. But now there was just a recent case, and I think it's in the Southern District of New York involving somebody that applied to be a lender. And so in that case, I mean, he filled out a fictitious application. He, he got his his uh, his company a significant amount of money in, in loans, but also applied to be a lender, which generated a significant amount of money in lender fees. And it turns out his application was all fraudulent, and he had blown the money on you know five or six different sports cars and you know multiple mansions and things like that. So he was indicted in the Southern District of New York, and his case is going through the courts right now. That's really the only case of a lender being prosecuted that I had heard of. Now whether or not the traditional lenders did their due diligence. Obviously, there's going to be there. There could be some litigation down the road with regard to that. But I think, I think the lenders are going to be fairly insulated by just saying, "Hey, look, we didn't have time or the resources. We were going through the pandemic ourselves, as well as the entire world. There was no way we could have possibly investigated all the applications that we received and doled out the money in the time that people needed to receive it." Right now, I think the only lenders that are going to be charged are ones that like. I think Mr. Martinez in the Southern District of New York that fraudulently and fictitiously filled out the application purely for the purpose of becoming a lender, knowing that he would be able to generate a significant amount of fees that were going to be paid by the SBA. So the the lender really didn't need to have a 
safe full of cash to lend out. It's more or less, he's a, he was a paper processor in a sense. So the SBA is the actual one that wrote out the check. Would that be fair to say? Exactly, because it's the SBA that forgives the loan uh, anyway. So you know, anyone that got the PPP loan received a letter from the SBA indicating that their loan was forgiven. So the banks were, you know, conveyances or conduits or however you want to look at it. There was really nothing on their part that would have led them to say, hey, you know, we have to heavily scrutinize this. Otherwise, we're going to be out all this money. Unless there's something I'm unaware of where the SBA would not pay the bank if it was determined that they didn't do their due diligence on the case. I'm unaware of anything like that. It's almost the same, Sam, as when the lending institutions were getting in trouble because of the wild, wild west and the stated income loans back in 2008, which is way back when, 2006, remember those those times where Mm -hmm. it was, you just showed up and said, I got income and the bank said, okay, thank you very much. Here's your, here's your loan. Of course, everybody, you know, a lot of people defaulted because they didn't have the true income, the liar loans. And then these banks sold it as mortgage-backed securities. It's just weird that, I don't know, the banks just were once again like a conduit. They just said, yeah, sure. And somebody else was on the hook, even though the banks weren't. They were just more or less getting the fees and that's it. Not saying the banks are, are guilty of all this. It's just it just seems like the government really kind of participated in the same process that the banks were doing a decade ago when it comes to mortgage-backed securities because they didn't have to worry about it. But just, they're just a paper pusher. I wasn't sure if you had a thought. Right? About yeah. That or yeah. Yeah. No. I mean, that's a, that's a good analogy. And and to me, it was obviously this was a situation caused by you know, the, the coronavirus. Yeah. But that was kind of a, a self-induced issue that arose because, yeah, I think the underwriting process for the banks at the time wasn't what it should be. And, and that was taken care of shortly thereafter. But yeah, very, very similar. You're right with that analogy. In your white collar defense, let's switch gears a little bit. Do you ever use experts? And if you do, how do you choose them? Yeah, no, I mean, so long story short, yes. And I, it really depends on what I'm using them for. So for example, there's times where a client is under investigation. And throughout that investigation, we can try to convince the government that our client doesn't need to be charged with a crime and we can either hire a forensic accountant or CPA or data analyst to go through some numbers and present a report. And then we would present that to the U.S. Attorney's Office in an effort to you know, prevent someone from being indicted and tell the government that the figures are off or their theory of the case is incorrect. And so I would have a different expert in mind, depending on if that's what I was using them for, or if it was somebody that I wanted to testify in trial in front of a jury. Um, Obviously, I'd be a lot more selective if I'm looking for an expert to testify. And I've had them testify. I've had psychologists testify as to clients' mental health. I've had psychosexual evaluations conducted. I've had forensic accountants review some of the numbers and documents that were provided by the government. So it really depends on the specific purpose. Obviously, if someone's testifying in front of a jury, the first thing I look for is how many times have you testified in front of a jury? Was it on behalf of the prosecution or was it on behalf of the defense? And then I also look at the academic credentials because juries like to hear that somebody has you know, a bachelor's degree, a master's degree, a PhD. They don't want to hear somebody that doesn't have all those acronyms after their name. But if I'm just working directly with the government and the case is pre-indictment, it gives me a little bit more of an option as to who I can select. And obviously the, the 
next biggest factor is the client's budget. You know, how much money do they have to retain an expert? And, uh, is that something that they want to to invest in? Because they're the ones that are, are flipping the bill for it. So they need to be okay with spending the money on something like that. So there's a lot of factors that go into that decision. What do you look for in qualifications regarding a forensic accountant? If you, we could dig down a little bit deeper. Yeah. So, I mean, the first thing I look for is, is how many times they've testified in federal court. The reason I say that is because just testifying, it's, I don't care how smart you are. I don't care how good your reports are. Just testifying in itself is a particular skill set. And if you haven't done it that many times, I'm always leery of using somebody that's going to be testifying in federal court for their first time. You know, I'm also, uh, I, I prefer somebody that's been in federal court versus state court because federal court is just a different animal. And <laughs> You can and, say that again. It's, it's, a, it's like a three-ring <laughs> circus in the state court from what I understand. But in federal court, boy, it is very, at least the ones I've been into, it's very strict, stringent, and you're probably the only people in the courtroom. I mean, there's not a circus of people in the courtroom. It's just very little people there except for, this is a high-profile case and there's newspaper reporters in the in the audience but that's so exactly scary. yeah you'll you'll scarcely find somebody watching a federal trial i think they're just too boring for me for most people yep but uh and so i guess you know other things i look for is you know how many times have you testified on behalf of the prosecution and sometimes i've had people testify that used to work for the government or used to work on behalf of a federal agency so those are the ones I prefer only because it, it allows me to elicit that on direct examination. I get to show that this person isn't as biased as somebody that's basically a hired gun that testified 50 times and only on behalf of the defense. Um, if, if someone's testified on behalf of the government or worked for the government, it, it's something that I, I always use to my advantage when I'm listing that on direct. What would you recommend for experts? Let's just talk about forensic accountant for a second, because that's part of the podcast is the fraud and forensic accounting industry. What would you recommend for those experts who want to assist in litigation support to help defense attorneys like yourself? How do they get your attention and ultimately win your business? It's a great question. And so I'm, I'm big on networking and I'm big on building relationships. And here's the biggest mistake, in my opinion, that I've seen from people that want to you know, work with an attorney or essentially what I like to, what I like to call that is, you know, make an upstream relationship. So typically I, I think of it as a stream. And if I'm referring something out, it means it's something like I would refer out to like a forensic accountant or someone that could assist on a case that I'm working on. But it's rare that somebody, and that would be, that would be what I consider downstream, similar to uh, an orthodontist is usually going to get business because they're the client is referred by a dentist. People don't go looking for their orthodontist in the yellow pages or on the internet. They're going to go by the referral that's been given to them. What I like to see from people that I would be able to refer to is I know it's difficult for a forensic accountant to be able to refer upstream to the lawyer because it's typically the, the reverse. The lawyer would refer to the forensic account. But what I haven't really seen too much is a forensic accountant making the effort to find a way to be helpful to the lawyer other than offering their services. And it really, you know, when I've gotten calls from forensic accountants or an email, it really comes off more of like a pushy sales call yep. versus a, hey, I just want to get to know you. I want to build a relationship with you. Oh, by the way, do you, do you have anyone you can introduce me to that I can build a relationship with? 
But more importantly, what can I do for you, Sammy? How can I help Sammy Azari? Is there a particular lawyer, lawyer that you want to meet that I may have worked with in the past that I can introduce you to? So I think that the biggest thing is find a way to be helpful to the attorney other than offering your services. I mean, it's good for us to know what you do. And it's good that you reach out and tell us what services you can offer. But the way it can come across sometimes is kind of more of like a sales call. So I think the biggest thing that you could do is offer to be helpful in another way. Say, hey, you know what? This is what I do. I think we have some synergies. I'd love to build a relationship with you. And just take some time building a relationship. The business will come later. You got to get to know someone, like someone, and trust someone before you can refer to them. And that takes time. Yeah. Um, the forensic accounting space is not where you can put up a Google ad and expect to get a lot of clicks and people to to hire you. It's all based upon who you know. Referrals, referrals, referrals. That's where right. all my business is coming from is an attorney who knew me, recommended me somebody else. That's really all, really all it is. I mean, I don't care how many emails I sent out or letters, pfft, nothing. Divorce attorney, tell another divorce attorney, this is who I'd hire. You automatically just got the job. Really. Uh, right. Exactly. Does it doesn't take too much too much persuasion once the attorney you know recommends you to another attorney. Once you get that referral, I mean your job is basically done. You don't have to sell yourself. Somebody else already kind of took care of that for you. I apologize for the dog in the background. No, it's okay. No, no worries. Do you find when you when you are recommended to someone that you immediately Google them or look up their LinkedIn profile? Yeah, always. I mean, I'm always looking people up on, on their LinkedIn profile, I'm looking at their websites. And what I like to tell people is your LinkedIn profile or your website profile is kind of like what our business cards were in you know the mid 90s or early 2000s. I mean, it's very important. If you look at somebody that is trying to represent a successful professional, you go to their website and it looks like a cheap website that was put together 18 years ago, you know, you're going to convey a certain message by doing that. So you, you know, people need to make sure that stuff is up to date. It looks good. It's, it's refreshed and it has all the newest professional accolades and achievements that somebody has. I'm, I'm always routinely checking my website and my LinkedIn profile to make sure everything's up to date. I had this epiphany one time where I thought my website probably wouldn't get me any referrals, but definitely would make me lose it if it stunk. Yeah, would you, would you <laughs> feel, feel the same way? Because I, I never said someone say, you know what? I looked at the website. I thought you're fantastic. I need to call you. It's always I was referred to you. I looked you up. You look fine. <laughs> you know, I didn't lose a sale, uh, at least with a decent website. So uh, I think you're right. It's it's it is a it is the new business card for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Regarding criminal defense, especially white collar, what resources or training have helped you on your journey? biggest things that have helped me is actually tr just trying cases in federal court. So, you know, when I was a young attorney, I wanted to try more cases. And so I just volunteered my time with people that I thought were excellent trial lawyers so I can try more cases in federal court. You know, so that made me feel a lot more comfortable. And I felt it gave me an edge because there's a lot of people that don't really try cases, especially in federal court. So I think just being in there and having, you know, having the ability to say, you know, I've tried cases in federal court. I received a, you know, a full acquittal right before the pandemic started in the Northern District of Illinois. You know, similarly, just being able to get a great result has been very helpful. We just had a wire fraud case dismissed after five years of litigation. The biggest thing that was helpful is just repetition and actually doing it, getting to the point that you feel comfortable in federal court. A lot of people, I think, find it to be an intimidating place. And so they, they approach 
case by thinking it's insurmountable or that the prosecutors have this awesome power of the U.S. government behind them and that it's going to be very difficult to topple them. And for the most part, that's true. But I find just the practice makes perfect and just getting in court, trying cases. Uh, other things are read the case law, make sure you know the local rules, make sure you know that the case law, make sure you're completely prepared for every argument, find something that you like, write an article about it. I just find that putting yourself out there, doing presentations, writing, getting published, those are the best ways to kind of hone your craft, get your confidence up and have people think of you as an authority and they'll treat you differently as a result. So I've just always found that continuing to learn, practicing regularly to make sure that I'm at the top of my game has, has helped. One of the things I had when I was a special agent, Sam, is there's times, and I couldn't do this, but there's times I'd do the initial interview of the, of the defendant, right? And you know, you're in trouble with the IRS and you probably need an attorney. And the question they would always ask me, because you build rapport with them and try to be nice to them, well, what attorney should I hire? I can't tell you that, dude. You know, that's, <laughs> it's not good. But I did sit there and say, okay, there's three things that you need to do. And I said, number one is you need to find, when you call this attorney up, make sure that they can, that they can be in federal court. Okay. Don't get the DUI guy out of state, right? Just federal court. And number two is ask them where the bathrooms are at because they should know where the, if they've been in court long enough, they know exactly where the bathrooms are at. So don't, you know, don't hire someone who doesn't know where the bathrooms are at in federal court <laughs> because they, that's kind of, you get a general idea of, you know, if the guy's been there quite a quite, or her has been there quite often. And I said in number three is ask them if they know who I am, if they've worked with me because yeah. in criminal tax, it's a very, very small niche. And right. I said, if you get satisfied answers that they know who the federal prosecutors are, they know might be by my first name, and they know the bathrooms at, you probably have a pretty good attorney that could help you out. Because I've seen some sorry ones couldn't work the way of a bag, and I've seen some very good ones. And I so far they they've done halfway decent. And I've actually had a couple email me back going, I got so-and-so. Is that okay? I mean, I can't sit there and say yes or no. I'll just sit there and say, <laughs> I know him. That's all I can say. I mean, I, I know the guy. But you're right. It's practice, 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 and get your reputation out there in federal court for sure. You hit the nail on the head with, uh, you know, asking someone where the bathroom is. It's, uh, and I, I, it's funny, kind of funny. I feel that because I, I handle cases in so many different courthouses across the country. There are often times that you know, I look like the lost one, but so it's kind of funny that you gave that example because nine times out of ten I wouldn't be able to tell someone where the bathroom is. Well, that's just that was my criteria of finding the perfect federal criminal tax attorney in your area was ask these three questions and you'll you'll right. you'll be in pretty good shape. Looking back in your career, do you have a biggest mistake or loss opportunity in the last fifteen years doing criminal defense? <laughs> I mean, I've made lots of mistakes. I'm just trying to think of one that really stands out. You know, I would say from early on, I wish I spent more time at the beginning trying to handle more in federal court and, and start my federal practice a lot sooner than I did. I, I spent a lot of time in state court before switching over to federal, basically 100%. You know, when I'm mentoring younger lawyers that are wanting to be criminal defense attorneys, and especially they want to focus on federal criminal practice, the biggest mistake that I tell them I made is spending too much time on the state matters. And I think the reason people do that is because kind of the, the opposite of what you said about the forensic account, you, can, you can't open up a website and get clients. Well, you can with the state criminal practice. You can 
show up on the you know, search engine optimized rankings for DUI and retail yeah. theft and all those types of cases, you can start making a pretty lucrative business pretty quickly for a low cost investment. But with federal courts, not like that. People are too discerning. They're not just looking at Google. They're asking for referrals and they want people that have actually been practicing in federal court. And they're also being asked for a lot more money than state court defendants are. So I think the biggest mistake that I've made is spending too much time in state court when I was young and not enough time in federal court. That would have been light years ahead of where I am now if I, I made that transition earlier. I find it ironic when I was dealing with some folks who were, they knew around the, the state court system, uh, DUI, pay a fine, you spend maybe 30 days in jail and we're done. And I explained to them, listen, now that the federal court, it don't work that way. This is not minor leagues. This is the major leagues. Federal judges don't mess around. And if you're in federal court, as a defendant, it's not because it's something that's very small. It's typically something that's very big, probably hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of dollars. And it's just, it's a different ballgame. So when they say 10 years, it's 10 years. It's not 10 months with good behavior and you're out. It's not, it doesn't work that way. The thing that I've noticed as well is the people that kind of go back and forth between state and federal and they're spending majority of the time in state court, they're using terminology that you know you just don't use in federal court. Um, and it's very clear when they appear before a federal judge that they're a state practitioner. They don't understand how to part to a defendant that, hey, this is a big deal. And some defendants will kind of have this thing of, oh, well, I didn't really do anything and I'm here for no reason. And these that happens in state court. That won't work with a federal judge. I'm sorry. No, it will not. All right. You ready for the final four questions? I am. Yeah. All right. Final four. You've been practicing criminal defense for the last 15 years. What is your biggest motivation now? To be, you know, the best federal criminal lawyer in Chicago and eventually the country. I mean, I, I've idolized people like David Boys and Phil Beck and some of these other high-profile litigators and trial attorneys, people that are very well respected. And I've always wanted to, you know, strive to achieve that level. So that's my biggest motivation is just having people hear my name and think, "Holy cow, yeah! If you got Sammy Azar, you got one of the best lawyers." in the entire state. So good for you. What book or books have changed your life or thinking? Top two for me would be Principles by Ray Dalio. He had his first part of the, the two book set. This one's focused on life and work. And I think that was that was a really good book. It really kind of taught me what how Ray Dalio started his firm and how he thinks and how he approaches problems and how his, his company Bridgewater functions. I thought it was really interesting because it was different than any other company I'd read about in the past. And also Good to Great by Jim Collins. I mean, that mm -hmm. was a really excellent book, very data-driven analysis on, you know, what makes a good company versus a great company and the differences. And it gave you lots of ideas on things that I could implement in my business. So those are the two books that I kind of think back to pretty regularly as to what I can do differently or how can I implement something I learned. Share something that you've purchased in the last 12 months Less than $100 that you enjoyed or made your job easier. What would that be? My uh, HubSpot CRM. I, I, I don't even understand how I had a, a time in my life when I didn't have a CRM. I mean, this is, I, I'm big on data if you haven't guessed already, but very, it just shows you the data, who you've reached out to, who you haven't reached out to, who you need to keep in touch with, where your referrals are coming from. That was an excellent way for me to be better at keeping in touch with certain people, continue to build relationships with people. So my CRM is probably the, the biggest purchase that I've made that's been a tremendous add to my business. 
for the audience sakes, what is a CRM? Customer relationship management, client relationship management. And so basically it's a way for you to keep track of all your contacts, whether they're customers or clients or referral sources. So think of it like your Outlook contact on steroids. You'll be able to keep track of any email that's sent between two people. You'll have it all, all right there. So if you if you think, well, hey, I just reached out to that person you know, six weeks ago and you check your CRM, you see that you haven't reached out to them in three months. It'll kind of trip your memory to reconnect with that person, especially if they're an important referral source. Make sure that relationships don't slip through the cracks. I'm glad you mentioned that because I was listening to a podcast just recently and HubSpot was mentioned you know, as one of those uh, advertisements as a CRM. And I was like, oh, well, you know, but I did not realize, I was looking at the website right now, but it's HubSpot. I didn't realize they had a free one too. It's a, uh, yeah, it's part it's, of it. Uh, I didn't know that. So I'm glad you mentioned that. I would highly recommend it. If you had to do something else, Sam, you get fired today, you can no longer practice law. What would you be doing? Probably right. You know, it's been kind of a passion of mine in the last few years to write and I've always I've wanted to focus on being a better writer and so what I've done is you know become a become a serious reader and I've heard that reading is a great way to improve your writing and so I started with writing a few articles and I wrote a few book chapters and so my my goal as of late has been to write a book and so if I lost my law license and I didn't have time obviously I had plenty of time since I don't have to practice law anymore I would definitely write. I would write some sort of a book. I'm not quite sure what that book would be yet, but that would be what I would do. All right, Sam. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I really do appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Best of luck to you on your criminal law practice. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me.